The following episode contains graphic depiction of gun violence, including sounds of gunshots, and may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. How did that day start? What was your last conversation with Jamie that day? So it's February 14th, Valentine's Day. My wife's favorite day of the year. Always has been. And my two teenage children, at the time my daughter was 14 and my son was 16, me being dad, I wanted to introduce them to some of the romance of Valentine's Day. And so I came up with this crazy plan. My uh, wedding video, which they had never watched because it's on a VCR and I was going to digitize it. And I bought the equipment to do it. We were going to watch it as a family that night. And it matters to that morning because and this is something that I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. Number one, my kids were running late and they were being typical siblings. They were arguing about it and blaming each other. That was like every morning, nothing abnormal with that. That morning, I had an even greater incentive to get them out the door because I wanted to get to work on finishing this video. And I was busy rushing my kids out the door that morning. You're going to be late. You got to get to school. My last words to my daughter were not, I love you. That's not what I said to them when I was rushing them out the door. And I will struggle with that for the rest of my life. At 2.21 p.m., a 19-year-old former student entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and opened fire on students and staff, killing 17, wounding another 17. Hello, we're at Stoneman Douglas High School, and I think there's a shooter holding Hello? What happened that day in Parkland four years ago has created a ripple effect that reaches far beyond Broward County, Florida. According to Everytown for Gun Safety, there have been at least 95 incidents of gunfire on school grounds in 2022 alone, resulting in 40 deaths and 76 injuries nationally. And that's just schools. We are coming on the air at this hour with news of a school shooting in South Florida. This took place in Parkland, Florida at Douglas High School. No word yet on casualties. From Cast Media, this is Media Circus, an inside look at private tragedy in the public eye. I take high profile crimes you might think you know and connect you with the real people behind the media coverage to share their stories in their own words, on their own terms. I'm Kim Goldman. When I met Fred Guttenberg for the first time, I couldn't help but be reminded of my own dad. Loving, passionate, fiercely protective of his family and friends. Like my own father, he was suddenly thrust into a world he never wanted to be a part of, but uses his voice and his whole being to not let the world forget what happened to his child and 16 others that February day. I felt an instant connection. Kim, you're someone who understands, who knows what I'm feeling, who when I talk about the abruptness of it, the brutality of it, Mm -hmm. the life-changing nature of it, you get it. And that's why we're doing this today. Parkland, Florida is a tranquil suburb in Northwest Broward County. The quiet, family-oriented, quickly growing community is lauded as one of the best places to live in the state of Florida. So take me back to what your life was like before we lost Jamie. We were the typical 
American family, my wife and I living in suburbia. I had two kids, one boy, one girl. We had two dogs. I mean, you could not be more typical. Known as a little firecracker, Fred once described his daughter at 14 as having the greatest BS detector and moral compass of anyone he ever met. Energetic and feisty, the freshman at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas loved to dance. My daughter danced competitively. My son played ice hockey. We never spent a minute without our children. Every vacation, everything we did, we were dedicated parents who always worked to make sure our kids were safe until we found out they weren't. That morning, Jamie and her older brother, Jesse, left for school, not unlike the countless mornings before. How did the rest of that day unfold? The rest of that day was a normal day. We communicate, not like when we grew up, the kids go to school with these things, you know, the phones. So you communicate with them throughout the day and you text with them. And my daughter is, especially with my wife, communicated everything. If her shoelace gets a tie <laughs> while she's walking around, she'll text my wife to let her know. So everything got communicated and the day was perfectly normal until just after 2 p.m. when my son called and he said, Dad, there's a shooter in my school. And my son could be a bit of a jokester. So I, my initial instinct wasn't to take him seriously until he then said, and I can't find you because as much as they were typical siblings and did the sibling arguing and stuff, he watched after his sister like a hawk. He never messed around with her safety. He took care of her. And as soon as he said he couldn't find her, I knew he was serious. He said, they're trying to tell us to run, but I can't, I have to find Jamie. And I said, you can't turn around. You have to run. Get out of there. I'll worry about your sister. And he's like literally crying to me on the phone that he doesn't want to listen to me because he wants to go back and get his sister. And if he would have gone back and he would have gone into the building to get his sister, he would have been one of the victims. So as I'm on the phone with him, convincing him to run, he starts to then say, I'm hearing more bullets. And those were the ones on the third floor that were killing my daughter. He and I listened to it together. And eventually he ran. He got off the school campus. He got to a Walmart on the other side of the school. Turns out that's also where the killer was hiding out. So he was there at the same time as my son and nobody knew it. I get my son in the car with me and I tell him to do that find my iPhone thing. For Jamie. That's when we first knew with certainty that Jamie's phone was still in the building. My only hope was she dropped her phone because we knew we would have heard from her by now. My wife was actually across the street at another school and they were on lockdown there, so she couldn't leave. We were communicating on the phone and one by one, all of her friends that we knew she would have been with start calling their parents, and they're not with Jamie. When the last person we could have possibly thought of had called, my wife and I started to get that worst possible feeling. 
Fred and his wife Jennifer agreed to meet at a local hospital to look for Jamie. They spent over an hour there. There was no sign of their daughter. As they left in separate cars, Fred made a call to a friend, a police officer in nearby Coral Springs, to ask for his help. I called my friend and I told him she's not here. So he went back to the school and the FBI let him go walk the campus with them to see the victims that were still there. Fred and Jennifer then decided to go home. It was about a 40-minute drive from the hospital back to our house. My wife was in the car in front of me. About 30 minutes into the drive, he calls me back and he says, do me a favor. There's a park that they were setting a staging area at. He says, meet me at the park so we can talk there. And I said, why? I just want to go home. Said, no, no, you need to meet me at the park. He wanted me to get the notification where there was professional help. I said, do you know something? Because if you do, you need to tell me now. And he just broke down crying and he said, she's gone. He found her. My wife was in the car in front of me. She's looking in her rearview mirror. She sees me getting emotional. So now she calls and she wants to know what's going on. And I said, talking to Scott, he just wants us to meet him at the park. I didn't want to tell her while she was driving. And she just said, you know something, you need to tell me now. I said, then you need to pull over. And it was on the side of the road where I had to tell my wife that our daughter was murdered. We have already started to see the community come together here. Parents and students consoling each other well into the night for the families of the victims. They'll need that support now more than ever. They are going to need a lot of time. A lot of because my daughter was the first publicly identified victim, my home became a focal point for the media. Helicopters, the phone didn't stop, people knocking at the door. Again, fortunately, I have friends in law enforcement, and they ended up putting police around my house to keep that away. My focus in that first week was primarily planning a funeral, writing a eulogy, dealing with the hordes of people who are coming into our home, making sure my family is okay. So how was Jesse in those first few days? My son that night was shockingly calm. To the point where I was a little concerned. People just start coming over nonstop. Around nine o'clock that night, we decided to go to this hotel where they set up for the families to do notifications. We already knew, but none of the other families had received a specific notification yet. But we wanted to be with them. Around one in the morning, we came home and I said to my son, do you want to sleep in the room with mom and I tonight? He just said, no, you know what? I want to go up to my room. He was up there maybe 10, 15 minutes, and he came down crying, hysterical. And he just said, she didn't fight back. My son is really noisy, and my daughter liked to quiet when she was trying to go to sleep. So every night, he's making noise, and she wants to go to sleep. They would argue, and eventually they'd figure it out. It was just their thing. They figured it out. What broke him? was that she didn't fight back when he was being noisy. That's when he came down and it really hit him. I'm now an only child. I'm never going to be an uncle. It all started coming out. What also began to come out was reports that mistakes were made. Devastating mistakes. The release of surveillance videos and audio, all part of a scathing draft report from a Florida State Commission, shining a light on a host of fateful security missteps. If we can't protect our children in schools, 
then who can we protect? How much did you know as to what was going on? What did you know? Going back to my friend who's the police officer, he's actually the one who arrested the killer. Oh, my God. I had an insides view to things that were going on before they were becoming public. I knew that night of really big failures that could have made a difference in the outcome. Meanwhile, cameras showing school resource officer waiting outside on his radio instead of trying to stop the gunman. I think we got shot fired. He knew there was gunfire. He knew where it was coming from. And he hid. Five minutes go by before police officers even enter the building. Cops using surveillance footage on a 20-minute delay to try to track down the armed assailant who had already escaped, according to the Sun Sentinel. They are monitoring the subject right now. He went from the third floor to the second floor. Broward Sheriff's Office, which had commanding control of the scene, did not send their sheriff's officers in immediately. The sheriff is also investigating reports from nearby Coral Springs police officers who responded to the school. The claim, several deputies were waiting instead of rushing in during the shooting. It was only when three nearby Coral Springs police officers took matters into their own hands that law enforcement even entered the building. My friend, who I've told you about, he worked for Coral Springs Police Department. It was not Coral Springs PD's premises to control. When he and two other Coral Springs police officers got there, they saw the Broward Sheriff's officers hanging outside the perimeter. So they actually breached the perimeter and they drove in. The sources say the Broward deputies didn't appear to join the Coral Springs officers when they went in. He didn't even put on protective gear. He didn't grab his rifle. He and these other two cops ran in hoping to stop a bad guy. It was already too late. But it wasn't only local law enforcement who made grave mistakes that day. While we were planning the funeral, when we got done with much of the details, we were going to transition to picking out a casket. I decided to look at my phone. I had a a voicemail from a number I didn't recognize and a text message. When I called back, the person told me that I had already missed a call that the FBI held with the families and I'll just have to be paying attention to the media later to hear the details. And I just flipped out. And I was like, no, if there's something that the families have been informed about, I need to know this. So someone from the FBI called me back to let me know that it was about to become public, that the FBI, in fact, had the information that should have led them to pursue the person who ended up doing this, and they didn't. 30 days before, they received very specific, very credible tips that should have been investigated. The FBI has certain protocols that say what you should and shouldn't investigate. And this was one that should have been, and it wasn't. The deputy director is admitting his team's failures and promising to take corrective action. He also believes... I'm literally having this call with the FBI while I'm picking up this casket. And I just said, do you mean to tell me, have the FBI done its job? My daughter would be alive today. And he just said, I'm afraid so, sir. Had people done their job, had the SRO not hit out, it may have only been those on this first floor. They still would have been shot and killed. It still would have been devastating. 
but the killer may not have made it to the third floor where my daughter was. The school's resource officer, Scott Peterson, allegedly seen on video taking cover, has already resigned. It is possible that this could have been stopped after maybe seven or eight people were killed, not 17. And that, unfortunately, we'll never be able to say with certainty because it happened. I have levels of anger that are unimaginable. I have filed lawsuits. I have become a public activist. I've taken a lot of abuse and hatred for doing so. But you know what, Kim? I don't fucking care. The day my daughter died, fear for me died with her. I, I know what happened to her. My daughter didn't die in a classroom. She died running down the hallway. There was an active shooter at her back. I'll never know fear like my daughter knew fear. And so I'll never have fear again. You can't hurt me with words. You can't make me afraid to pursue truth because I don't have fear. It died that day. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twist and turns and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. So when I signed up, I filled out the questionnaire, super easy, not really that invasive. I was able to articulate and make special requests for what was helpful for me. And then within 48 hours, I got an email back telling me that I was matched. Super easy. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy that's done right in your own home. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You don't ever have to sit in like a weird, uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. It's really a great way to show up for yourself and invest in your well-being because, well, you deserve some inner peace. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash circus. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer from Media Circus listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash circus. From cringing at the pump to getting an eye-popping check at your favorite restaurant, the inflation is hitting us all where it hurts, and it really hurts. That's why I started using Upside. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With every purchase, I'm earning cash back thanks to Upside. As a single mom putting her kid through college, saving pennies wherever I can is hugely important to me. All you have to do is just check in at the business, you pay as usual with a credit card or a debit card, and you get paid. Super easy, and you can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. It's a no-brainer. I went to the gas station. I found one in my area that was offering cash back. I claimed the offer and the money started rolling in. Download the free Upside app and use promo code CIRCUS to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code CIRCUS. It was just over 24 hours later when Fred first began to speak up publicly at a vigil attended by thousands of friends, family, and community members. My job is to protect my children. And I sent my kid to school. Do you remember bringing yourself to that moment? Did you prepare comments? Nothing prepared. I didn't even go there knowing I was going to do that. Don't tell me there's no such thing as gun violence. 
It happened in Parkland. I don't really remember my mind developing clarity around this being an instance of gun violence until when I was at the Parkland Vigil. And I looked out in this crowd of thousands of people and asked me when I got there if I want to speak. And I spoke to the vigil. It was standing there where for me, in my mind, was when I became clear of what happened to my family and how this has forever changed me. I don't know what I do next. We are broken. I just went up there and I let it rip just from the heart. I remember talking about feeling broken. And I remember at the end saying, this time gun violence messed with the wrong community and the wrong dad. And I guess the world has learned that gun violence this time messed with the wrong community and the wrong dad because it hasn't ever been the same, this conversation since Parkland. Just one week later, survivors of the shooting and their families took center stage at a town hall hosted by CNN, with many of them confronting local law enforcement, politicians, and the NRA. How was he able to get a gun when he was mentally ill? His mom called the cops on him 39 times. What happened that night at the town hall? So every day that week, I was reading, making sure to follow up on what my elected leaders were saying. And that entire week, Marco the president, and too many others who were actively speaking about what happened, but never mentioning the idea that the gun was a factor. And I was getting angry. Marco is Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Guns the factor Absolutely. in the hunting of, of our course kids. They were. What you're asking about is the assault weapons ban. Yes, yes sir. <laughs> so let me be honest with you about that one. If I believed that that law would have prevented this from happening, I would support it. But I want to explain to you why it would not. Marco Rubio talked about all sorts of stuff, but didn't ever want to talk about the gun. And so when I had the chance to confront him that night, that's what I challenged him on. Senator Rubio, my daughter, running down the hallway at Marjorie Stone yes, and Douglas was shot in the back yes, sir. with an assault weapon, the weapon of choice. Yes, sir. Okay? It is too easy to get. It is a weapon of war. The fact that you can't stand with everybody in this building and say that, I'm sorry. Sir, I do believe what you're saying is true. This was Marco's backyard. I mean, Marco's 30 miles from here. If that, the president at the time, Donald Trump, not only did he not mention the gun, he actually tweeted out and he blamed my daughter's murder on the Russia investigation. Overnight, President Trump blasted the FBI over the Florida school shooting and the Russia investigation, tweeting, very sad that the FBI missed all the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. It was a local call center failure. Nothing to do with it. He politicized it. He went out of his way to blame something else. They were willing to just talk about anything and blame anything, but not the gut. And I'll never let that happen. I think there were a lot of people that were cheering for you in that moment, but I also remember cheering with the State of the Union. I was there as a guest of Speaker Pelosi, and the early part of that State of the Union, 
he started talking about illegals coming over the border and they're responsible for all the gun violence. And, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, my daughter was killed by a teenage American male. And later on in the State of the Union, they got on this whole Second Amendment rant. So long as I am president, I will always protect your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. I started hooting and hollering and, and I just stood up and I yelled over the president, what about victims of gun violence like my daughter? In reaffirming our heritage as a free nation. Less than a minute later, I look and there's the Secret Service what? waiting for me. I got interrogated in the hallway, cuffed, and put in a vehicle. I was cuffed to the inside of the vehicle and transported. I didn't know where I was going to end up to a detention facility in D.C. I was cuffed to the wall. I was told I was under arrest, but nobody had yet read me my Miranda rights. I wasn't allowed yet to call an attorney. And I didn't have my phone because it was still in Speaker Pelosi's office. So I couldn't even call my family. I was in this prison probably till about one in the morning. And all of a sudden they came to me and they uncuffed me and they said, you're free to go. In the hallway was Speaker Pelosi's assistant and the sergeant at arms. And they tell me the speaker wants to talk to me. And now I'm thinking, I can't believe I've embarrassed her. So she calls and I say, I'm sorry, I embarrassed you. I was there as your guest. And she just said, what are you talking about? You spoke for the country tonight. She goes, I'm proud of you. In hindsight, I don't really regret it because the next day people were talking about the issue of gun violence in this country. I let my anger and emotion cause me to react in a way that if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have done. Are you criticized for as much as you speak out? By those who are supportive of the gun lobby and would like me to shut up. Yes, they're always telling me to shut up. (laughs) But Fred has no intention of being quiet. Determined to get the word out about gun violence, he's a regular on TV news programs, along with countless online and print media outlets. And joining us now from Parkland, Florida, is Fred Guttenberg. I don't know how you're doing this, but we thank you. Um, The idea that we now need to prepare ourselves to be shot in school or shopping or at a movie or in a place of worship, while that would have seemed bizarre and unacceptable, not long ago, it's horrific to me that we let things get to this place. It's it's unacceptable. This can't happen to another family. And, and I apologize. Do you feel like you weren't savvy enough as to what was going on before what happened to your daughter? And do you have feelings around that? You asked the ultimate question. Was I savvy? I was savvy. I wasn't uninformed. I was very aware of gun violence and the impact on other families, but I wasn't involved. I live with guilt every minute of every day that my voice wasn't a part of this until it was my kid, that I wasn't doing more to stop gun violence when it was happening to others. It's why I do what I do now and why I'll never shut up. It's why I don't care if people tell me to. Because I know I was silent once and my daughter died and it's not going to happen again. 
Fred has emerged as one of the most vocal advocates for common sense gun reform. He's been actively involved with the progress of the Protecting Our Kids Act. The day gun safety legislation gets signed by a president, I will turn to a pile of mush and I'll disappear for a while. But then I'll come back and keep doing what I do. President Joe Biden today signed into law the first major federal gun safety legislation passed in decades. It marks a major bipartisan breakthrough on one of the most contentious policy issues in Washington. While this bill doesn't do everything I want, it does include actions I've long called for that are going to save lives. President Biden signed the gun safety bill into law after we recorded with Fred. I reached out to congratulate him and he replied, thank you, a truly historic and crazy week. There will be a public ceremony at the White House and Fred will be in attendance. The same media that bombarded the Guttenberg home in the hours after Jamie's murder has become a partner to Fred in getting his message out to the world. Do you feel like the media treated this story with respect and dignity? I do. I I can't say that the very first night, but I got to tell you, after that, they could not have been any more decent to me and helpful in making sure the story gets told. That's not true of everyone. Fox News won't have me. And I've been public about it. I've gone on Twitter and talked about it a million times, but it's not like it's gotten them to change their position. They will not have me on. Do you feel like they have mischaracterized you, your family, your mission? I think that by talking about me and people like me as haters of the Second Amendment and as gun grabbers, they are mischaracterizing who we are and what our position is. I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. I sent my son out to go shooting with his grandfather about a month ago. I have no issue with any of that, but we shouldn't put in place a process that makes it so easy through some bastardized interpretation to get these weapons. I'm sorry. There's, there's The majority of their listeners, if they were to actually hear directly from me, would end up saying, that's cool. I can agree with that. Do you have advice for people in the media as to how to work with families, uh, victims, people that have been traumatized? Number one, focus on the victim and not the person who committed the trauma. That's number one, two, and three, actually. Tell us about Jamie. Tell Mm -hmm. us what she wanted to do with her life. She was part of the Best Buddies program. She was part of something called the Friendship Initiative that works with kids who have special needs. And she volunteered her spare moments doing that. And honestly, most of the folks who I've met in the world of media are really good at it. And the one thing most victims and families will tell you? I wish they'd stop using the killer's name. In 2012, after Alex Teves was killed with 11 others in a mass shooting in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, his parents launched the No Notoriety campaign, calling for responsible media coverage for the sake of public safety. His dad, Tom Teves, challenged Anderson Cooper. I would love to see, and I'll give you a challenge, I would like to see CNN come out with a policy that said, moving forward, we're not going to talk about the gun. What we're going to say is... We're now in a society where mass shootings happen so frequently. And the shooters do it to some extent for the attention. So no notoriety seeks to rob them of that attention. 
A suspect is alive in custody. As is our policy on this program, we will not say his name or show you his picture. We'll update you on the investigation, certainly, and we'll keep our focus on the victims, their loved ones, and the survivors. I will tell you others besides Anderson. I was on Nicole Wallace maybe a month ago, and she specifically said since a prior visit of mine on her show, she's made a determination to never use the name of a shooter on her broadcast. One by one. Chipping away. Right? We just keep on fighting and keep on pushing. As for the killer, who I also will not mention by name, his original March 2018 plea was not guilty. But in October 2021, he pleaded guilty to 17 charges of first-degree murder and an additional 17 counts of attempted murder. That means they move on to the penalty phase of this trial. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty, which means a jury will decide whether... I think the defense decided that if you avoid the whole criminal phase of the trial and all the evidence that would get presented, maybe there's a better chance of not getting the death penalty. The prosecution has a different mindset, which is we are still planning to present our entire case. It's not going to be a typical penalty phase trial. It's going to include all the gory details. We are not leaving anything to chance. The penalty phase has not been without delays and complications. The defense tried to withdraw from the case yesterday. But the judge is now handling two motions that could yet again delay the trial even more. But at the time of this recording, the jury has been selected and sworn in. Yes, a panel of seven men and five women have been selected to serve as the jury. It has been a real challenge to find a jury to sit through what is expected to be a four-month trial. And I hope the person who did this to my daughter gets what he deserves. Well, what do you believe he deserves? I want the judicial process to play itself out. And I do want him to get the death penalty. There was no mercy for my daughter or the others. I just know I'll never forgive him. And I want him off the face of this earth. It sounds callous to say it the way that you do, because I say it the same way. It's It's honest. honest. Other people struggle with that honesty. And I find myself wanting to like fight with everybody to explain it. It's not a position I ever thought I would be so strongly committed to, but you know, life gets in the way. I had somebody at an event who asked me, and I suspect he thought I was going to say I was against the death penalty because he made judgments about me based upon some of the other things that I do. And when I was clear that I wasn't, he tried to debate me. I said, as nicely as I could, I will not debate you. As long as I visit my daughter at a cemetery, my opinion is not changing. One of the questions victims and their families are often asked is how we look at justice. But how we actually define justice is layered and unique. I'm not really sure how to define what justice is in this case. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happens, I still go visit my daughter at the cemetery. That never changes. So I'm never sure I'll ever have justice. What I hope to have is more opportunities for my family and I to find peace. Do you think that you find your peace in the advocacy work that you do? My advocacy work is what gets me up every day. It's what gives me purpose. 
And the idea of doing more so that another parent doesn't have to go through this is what motivates me. But for my family, putting the legal process behind us is one way for us to have peace and in the long run, the most important way. Advocacy work that includes a foundation called Orange Ribbons for Jamie in support of the causes that were important to his daughter. My foundation was created to honor things that matter to Jamie in life, as well as to educate on why her life was cut short. We're partnering with World Central Kitchen to start feeding the victims of gun violence around the country. So when instances of gun violence happen, we want to be the go-to source to make sure rather than communities needing to figure this out, we are just going to step in. Fred is also working with U.S. Senators to introduce bicameral legislation to implement instant universal background checks for the sale of gun ammunition. This will be known as Jamie's Law. Jamie's Law would extend background checks to anyone buying bullets. When Fred isn't running his foundation and getting his message out through the media, he's often writing. In 2020, he released his first book called Find the Helpers. We all have helpers in our life, whether or not we realize it or have acknowledged it, and we should do that and rely on them, but we also should always remember our responsibility to be a helper to others. So I hope people get that message. I want to inspire young people to know that in life, we all have moments, some bigger than others. Some are amazing, joyous moments, some are not. But what matters more than any given moment is what you do next. It's how people respond and react to moments that actually ultimately bring us our country's heroes and leaders. I think of the kids out of Parkland who started a movement because of what happened. Two of those students who you will recognize join us now. We have Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. If we make our voices heard as an American public together, we're going to have to do that if we ever want to overcome this terrible tragedy. So the moment happened. You can't take that away. But how you react and how you respond is what ultimately will define you in life. And I want people to understand that. In Find the Helpers, Fred shares stories of the incredible people he's met throughout his advocacy journey, as well as the surprising friendships he's formed, like the one with the President of the United States. When I actually met Joe Biden in person and had a very private conversation with him, and, and he talked to me about going through grief. And he was the person who told me, no two people grieve the same way. Too many marriages break up after a moment of grief like this. And he wanted me to understand this so that we could work on making sure we wouldn't. It's important to me that we talk about what trauma can do to a family, especially when it comes to the very personal way each family member grieves. Jesse and my wife have both taken on a very different direction and a very private direction. And so I've had to learn to honor that while they give me the space to do what I do. How is Jesse today? For Jesse, listen, he heard the bullets that killed his sister. He had a very real experience of his own because of that shooting. He was there. 
He was running so that he didn't get shot. And there's PTSD that comes from that. So he's had to deal with his own feelings and emotions while trying to figure out his path forward as a young adult, which he's doing, and he's doing great. And, you know, he's working now. He's got a great job. He's working hard. My key thing is for him, be okay. Be productive. Make sure you're focusing on your mental health and your physical health. Everything else works itself out. Just months before Jamie's death, she and her dance teammates displayed quotes that inspired them on the dance studio wall. Jamie's quote, Dreams and dedication are a powerful combination. Something Fred has lived by over the past four years. Something that helps him feel connected to his daughter. The things that I do to just stay connected to my daughter, not just in a, I guess, a emotional sense, but a physical sense, is I do go to the cemetery a lot. And that's where I sit. There's a bench right by her stall. And I look out, there's a lake with a fountain. And I sit there and I just talk to her. Every day when I said good night or goodbye to my daughter, it was always with three kisses. And so I kiss her stone three times every time when I leave. But the other thing I do to honor my daughter is the work that I do because of what happened to her life. The most important thing I do, it's her quote, dreams and dedication are a powerful combination. I have a dream of ending gun violence or at least reducing it. And I'm not going to stop. And through Fred's grief, advocacy, and fight, he's learned a lot about who he is at home and out in the world. Nothing that I have done or accomplished has ever been just because of me. And everything I do has always involved a lot of amazing other people who give me strength. And because of all of the amazing other people, I am much stronger than I ever thought I was. You can't stop me. The day my daughter was killed transformed me, and that's not going back. Do you love differently? My kids and my wife have always been absolutely everything to me. What it has changed is perspective. I always had my foot up my kid's ass, pushing them, expecting more of them, trying to get things out of them and accomplishments. After my daughter was killed, just be okay. Yeah, That's the only requirement. We'll figure everything else out. Just be okay. So perspective has changed. Not the way I love them, but my desires or beliefs on what a successful life looks like have shifted. I have a hard time sort of future focusing. I find myself being far more in the moment. I also have this inability a little bit to kind of look beyond because I know how quickly that can change. And I know that changed after my brother died. You and I have some very big things in common. I lost my capacity for a long-term view. I don't have it anymore. Because I do understand in a New York minute, things can change. I don't have this vision of what life is going to be like a year down the road, five years down the road. I wake up every day and I just do what I do 
and hope for everyone to be okay. And I go to sleep at the end of that day. If everyone is okay, I had a good day. And I wake up tomorrow morning and I start the process over. I live every day feeling as if the key part of my day is being my daughter's voice. A lot of your time being your daughter's voice, how do you balance maintaining Fred's voice and maintaining balance? (laughs) (laughs) Because I know how easy it is to give yourself totally over to a cause. Yeah. So how do you find that balance? I'm still a husband and a father to Jesse. In those moments, I kind of tune out the role of activist. I get in a car and drive and I and I can just tune everything else out. Put on my music, whatever. I love going to the mountains and just the mountain air. There's something very peaceful about it, being outdoors and hiking. And I find while writing is related to the work I do, writing does get things off my chest so that I can be me. After my brother died, I used to get in the car and I wouldn't sing. And I remember consciously thinking, I'm not singing. This is my favorite song. One day driving on the freeway and suddenly I found myself starting to mouth the words. There was like this rebirth of my love for music because something wasn't letting me embrace it. And then it was like blasting it and singing at the top of my lungs. And it was this release of all of that emotion. And I hadn't really. I, I hear you. When I would drive, especially in the early months, it was just more to just cruise and like disappear in my head. But I'll never forget. And it was just months after the shooting. I was listening to Howard Stern. He had Jimmy Kimmel on the show. And they were talking about something that was so hysterical. For the first time since my daughter was killed, I started laughing out loud. If you were driving near me at the time, you probably would have thought there was something really tragically wrong with me (laughs) because I was over the top laughing. It was the first time I had laughed in months. (laughs) And maybe that's part of the process of grief. When you start that wee bit of healing, you know, there's like a moment. And I, I, I just, I, I love that experience. I like being able to talk about it. It's been a true honor to talk about advocacy, resilience, and healing with Fred Guttenberg. His dreams and dedication are a powerful combination Given what he's experienced, it would be reasonable to live with anger and resentment. But Fred's message is one of hope. In spite of how tragic things were, I have hope. I am hopeful. I believe in the American people, and I am not going to give up on that hope. My dad has always said to me how much it means to him when he's referred to as Ron's dad, because the story isn't about him It's always been about Ron. So thank you, Jamie's dad, for your honesty, your compassion, your advocacy, and sharing your story with me. To learn more about Fred's mission, visit orangeribbonsforjamie.org and follow him on Twitter at Fred underscore Guttenberg. Media Circus is a cast original podcast, executive produced and hosted by me, Kim Goldman, produced by Jackie McDougal, and Harper Carlton is our associate producer.